I have a conversation for you today. Welcome to A Better Story Podcast. I am ridiculously excited to share this conversation with you. It is with Austin Channing Brown, and it's about her new book, I'm Still Here, Black Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness. Look, here's the deal. You are going to hear me fawn over this book through the entire episode, and I am not even sorry. It is, no joke, my favorite book of the year so far. Austin tackles a really hard subject in racism and white supremacy, but she does it with vulnerability and honesty and humor and weaves her own story in and out of it in a way that I think you will love. So I'm going to get out of the way and let you enjoy the conversation and pre-order the book, which will be available May 15th. You can catch more of Austin at austinchanning.com. Catch her on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all the normals. She'll tell you about that, and you'll have links in the show notes to all of that. But I hope you enjoy this conversation and this book one-tenth as much as I did. Again, no joke, such good stuff. So enjoy the conversation with Austin Channing Brown. First off, you probably know this, but uh, this book is incredible, and I don't say that lightly, uh, or really, I think it's the first time I've said that to a guest up top, but... Um, you have done something and written something that's beautiful and powerful and poignant and worthwhile uh, and timely right now. The byproduct of that is it's very hard to ask you questions about that because of how beautiful and poignant it is and to do it justice. So um, I'd love to start by just having you describe what you're going for in the book. How would you, how would you succinctly say what you're doing? Oh, succinctly, huh? Or not. I mean, <laughs> no, we have like 45 minutes to an hour. So <laughs> I can ask one question. You can talk for 45 minutes. That That's fine. too funny. Um, I, I have been talking about racial justice and reconciliation since I was in college um, and devoured books on, on race. Um, and it felt like it felt like there were a lot of books on the shelf that were the step-by-step here's what you do. Um, here's the, the cohort that you build. Here's the videos that you watch. Here's the policies that need to be changed. Here, right. And those are great. But I wanted to write a, a book that focused more on story, um, that focused more on, um, on trying to trying really hard to paint a picture of what it's like when all of those things fall apart. <laughs> or when those things aren't in place or when those things are just given lip service. Um, so that was, that was my ultimate goal was to say, here's, um, here's a window into what it's like to be a black woman surrounded by white folks who are trying to get it right. Um, but don't always get it right. Well, that's, that was my thought to some extent was, um, the way that you write and the vulnerability with which you write in this uh, is uncommon and almost unheard of, I think, in these circles. Because I've the only time I've heard these conversations have been either in intimate relationships or in spaces where permission has been given. But you were just putting it out there on the page for everyone to to see. It's pretty frightening. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it really is. It's pretty frightening. And I tell you, um, a big reason why I did it is because I really want to affirm the experience of people of color like me, um, in particular black women. I really hope that any black woman who picks up this book reads it and goes, oh, I'm not losing my mind. 
this is all really happening. Like these are the same messages I've struggled with. These are the same stories. These are the same personalities. Like this is exactly what it's like. Um, yeah. yeah. So that was really important to me. And I felt like the only way I could do uh, like all of us justice was to be as open and as vulnerable and as truthful as I possibly could. And yeah, it's frightening, but it was necessary, right? It was necessary in order to even attempt to reach that goal. Yeah, what's so unique about it, I think, is the way that you lead into these really um, hard conversations for, uh, at least as a white guy, talking uh, hard conversations to have you enter into them through your story, which uh, almost forces me to be disarmed in some ways. If I have any empathy whatsoever, <laughs> I'm going to be disarmed as I'm approaching these things. So you do that really beautifully. Oh, Thanks. Um, one of the things that you mentioned sort of up top in the book is that you feel some sort of, or have felt throughout your life, some sort of pull to communicate hard issues about what it's like to be a person of color in America to white people. Um, I'm curious, how did you get there? What led you to, to have that sort of pull in that place? I think it was just being around white people. (laughs) 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 And the way I, I think over the years I have really, um, come to see the ways that whiteness really does just want what it wants. Um, And even in the conversation of justice and reconciliation, that there are a lot of white people who still want it on their terms. Um, Yeah. And I think I, I think that was the pull that I was feeling. Right. I think that um, I had found what I was passionate about but white institutions were saying, well, if you want to talk about that, this is the way we would like to talk about that. Mm, yeah. And I found out I was good at it. You know, what I mean? like I was I was good at adhering to those standards. Um, yeah. I could speak in a way in which, um, yeah, not all white people, but, you know. Yeah. Some, yeah. Some could. Hear Definitely. Me. And so, yeah, I, I really got caught, especially as, as, you know, as a young person trying to figure shit out (laughs) yeah we all must so that's part of it too it was just being young and being youthful but yeah Yeah. but it was something that could easily articulate like i am here for the white people (laughs) (laughs) um i want to get into some of that in a little bit more nuance but before we get there it might be helpful um just to set a couple terms or at least hear how you think about a couple terms that get thrown thrown around a lot in these conversations um so there are two big terms and i'm going to ask you to maybe give a definition uh, that, you know, it doesn't have to be perfect, but at least what you're thinking of. When you think of, uh, first off, white supremacy and then racism, because those are words that come up in these conversations and in your book quite a bit. And I think um, people have different working definitions of those. And so it's important for folks to hear what you're thinking of when you you hear those. So in its most basic form, I would say white supremacy is the idea that white is supreme. Like, very like face really value break yeah. that term down right um but that it can can be subtle right so we think of that in its extremes which is like the clan who thinks that white people are the best people right um but in in more um socially acceptable circles it just looks different but the end game is still that the way white folks speak is correct english what white people think um what white people have created um 
movies, uh, characters with white folks in them, right? <laughs> that that everything that um, that we create, that somehow whiteness has um, the best, the most supreme, the the most holy, the most <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's what I would call white supremacy. It's the ways that whiteness thinks it's better than everyone else. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then for racism is about power. So it's about how it's the ability to do that. <laughs> um, it's the ability to create a culture um, that says a white Christian contemporary music is better than gospel music. It's the ability to um, hire as many white folks as you want and then to say, oh, but we've already got two black people. Right. Like it's so racism yeah. is about power. It's the it's about the ability to create policy, to be discriminatory, to set in place um that hierarchy where whiteness yeah, is and, best. And that's one of the things that I think is lost oftentimes in these conversations is uh at least in a lot of white evangelical circles, people seem to think of racism as personal prejudice, right. but it's prejudice with power, with the ability to implement that right. prejudice. Right, right, right. Yes. Uh, so let's dive into it a little bit. Um, again, one of because you wrote this book so beautifully and poignantly and with your story intertwined uh, so well, I don't know that I am going to in my questions be able to do justice to every aspect of it. Um, but one of the things that you did just incredibly well was succinctly in like one or two liners, um, make these statements that were just packed with meaning and significance. Um, and what I would love to do, if you're okay with it, is just walk through some of these sure. and just get your reaction to some sure. of them. Because um, I think that would really be like a little window into what's going on with the book and hopefully give people a taste of what you're doing here. Yeah, that sounds great. Great. So the first one that we've hit on a little bit, but I just thought was really profound, was you say white supremacy is less like uh, an imposing beast or a creature and more like a poison. Yeah. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so um, I thought that white supremacy would show up like the Klan, like burning crosses, um, uh, calling me a racial slur, calling me the N-word, right? I thought that, that racism would show up and um, and I would see it and I would know it and I would call it out and <laughs> I would feel very empowered as a black woman. Um, but it turns out that... Um, it is, it plays with your mind as a person of color. It, it makes you question whether or not your version of reality is true. Um, so I watch, I watch Mike Brown die in the street and blackness has one version and whiteness has another version. Not only of what happened, but how I should feel, how I should react what is appropriate for me to do or say in response. And all those messages um, begin to play, could, can, begin to play with your mind. And so in that way, it becomes more like, like this poison where like, I feel funny, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, yeah. Did someone slip something in my drink? I, I feel like I was clear headed. I knew what I thought about this issue. And, and now I feel fuzzy and I feel off balance and, and beyond, um, beyond, uh, social crises, right? Like Ferguson, um, on a daily basis, right? Interacting, 
um, with this, with a white culture that doesn't see me, that doesn't fully value me, that interprets me as um, the real racist or angry or intimidating, right? And I don't see myself as any of those things. My family doesn't see myself as any of those things. Um, my friends don't see me as any of those things, right? Like, I'm pretty sure I'm not any of those things. Yeah. <laughs> and um, but to be in a culture that says that I am those things feels like poison. It feels like, oh, I've, I like I feel dizzy. I feel off center. Um, yeah. And so that's what what I'm trying to convey is that it's it's not this like huge thing, this purple dragon that I can just slay. Yeah. It's more complicated. Yeah. Which I imagine makes the work that much harder to uh, to have white folks like myself understand that because at least I, I thought that we could all agree that uh, people running around in white hoods is horrible and that's off, uh, off limits <laughs> well, recently until recently, right? Yeah. The bar moved. Um, <laughs> but the more, the nuanced stuff that you're talking about that poison um, I think is, is harder to see. And it's almost like the water that I swim in as a white person that I don't understand that, um, it may not be the water that uh, is made for everyone, so to speak. Right, right. And I would say that is the essence of this book is me trying to name the poison, yeah, right? Yeah. What it's like to try to 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 try to recognize the poison yeah. and what it takes to get out, yeah, <laughs> right? Yeah. To get it out of my system. Yeah. Another thing that another quote here that I'd love to hear you uh, unpack or talk about a little bit is you're talking. You talk about the workplace experience of what it's like to be a person of color and a woman of color uh, in the workplace. And you say this at one point after uh, an encounter of prayer, ironically enough, whiteness wants us to be empty, malleable, so that it can shape blackness into whatever is necessary for the white organization's success. Mm -hmm. Yikes. Mm -hmm. What's, can you unpack that for us a little bit? Yeah. So, um, <laughs> So, um, obviously I spent a lot of time in the church world and I've got a lot of friends who are vocalists, um, at churches. Um, and it is not uncommon for black women vocalists to be able to do two jobs. They need to be able to sing in the Christian contemporary pop rockish Right, whatever yeah. it's called. Yeah, I um, right. The, yeah. the daily experience. Yeah, the, the hill songs of the. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Which is fine. Um, yeah, I'm not knocking it, but it's shade there. Yeah, just reality. Yep. Um, but they also need to be able to sing the gospel music on MLK Day, and they need to be able to do the rap for the Justice Day, and they need to right, and so they're doing double duty all the time. Mm. Um, and I think there are sort of like multiple examples, multiple layers of that sort of thing. But again, in an attempt to like <laughs> paint an image, yeah. um, it can be really difficult for who a black woman is internally to constantly be policed and to be put in a box. So in that example, um, it's the, the, the white folks on the stage don't have to do the opposite. Mm -hmm. 
they don't have to learn how to rap. They don't have to learn how to sing gospel music, right? right. Because that's never going to become such a part of the culture that yeah. they need to, yeah. right? Um, but the black woman has to be able to do it all, but she can't just sing gospel music mm. and figure out how to work that into the culture. She can't just know how to rap and figure out how to work that into the culture of the church, yeah. right? And so in that way, she has to empty herself out on a normal basis, but then she has to bring her culture in as desired on the Sunday that's wanted to the degree that that is comfortable and acceptable. And so that's what I mean that, um, and, and I think more difficult to explain is how that works, um, within someone's, um, sort of administrative level jobs. So someone who's not on stage, but someone who is just working behind the scenes and their team is saying, hey, we want you to do this, but not too much of this. And we want you to teach us about race, but not too much. And we want you to, right? So we want you to talk about race, but we really want you to talk about prejudice. Yeah. And we want you to talk about, you know, we want you to talk about missions, but we want to talk about African missions, mm-hmm. not, right? And so it's this sort of constant um, desire to just get the right amount of blackness yeah. makes folks feel good. Yeah, dictating the terms of their uh, their experience. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things that comes up out of that um, that you talk about in the book as well is white fragility. And when white folks are often confronted with these sort of realities and the experiences, um, there is a fragility or a breaking or a, a emotional breakdown uh, that can happen. And you say white fragility ignores the personhood of people in color in favor of the feelings of white people which is maybe the most true statement that I've ever heard. Uh, Can you unpack that as well? Yeah. So I, um, you know, I travel across the country talking about race. Um, I've done it within organizations, led trainings and classes. Um, And I don't think there is one institution in which I have done this work in which someone fragile (laughs) didn't have up and um and to varying degrees right so sometimes it's just someone who wants to teach me i would say that would be the or mm-hmm. challenge me um so they come and stand in line afterwards and they go well what about this statistic about black people right um so i would say that's how it usually usually shows up an inability for me to just be the expert in the room for a second yeah um but it can be really volatile Um, It can be folks crying. It can be folks getting up and walking out. It can be folks yelling at me. Um, It can be quite scary, honestly. Mm. Um, And that's what makes this work really dangerous for a lot of black women is that we never know what the level of fragility is going to be. And so I just just, um, recently traveled to a Christian university And before I got there, um, I asked them for specific safety measures because, (laughs) you know, I'm traveling by myself. Um, I don't I don't have like an assistant or someone who uh, who travels with me. And so I was like, I need to know where the exits are. I need to know whether or not security is in the room. And if someone does have an outburst, I need to know who you're going to send up on stage to calm down the outburst. (laughs) Are you treated as paranoid in those experiences or are you? So far, you know what? So far, people have been understanding. And I think that's because of the political season that we're in. Um, I think had I asked for those measures eight years ago, um, five years ago, even 
Um, I think people would have been like, what are you talking about? But I think now, mm. yeah, institutions are like, Ugh. Right? like they yeah. always lead with, we don't want to like, we don't think anything's going to happen here. Um, but then there's a but, right? Yeah. And I think they know that because they know that people are fragile, particularly the way I talk about race, that not everyone talks about race the way I do. Um, but if you've heard me once or twice, you know, <laughs> someone yeah. might might get in their feelings. Yeah, it doesn't end in a hug for everyone where we all circle up. And, God, no, no, yeah. no, no, no. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so regardless of how volatile that outburst is, what it does is centers all attention on that person's feelings. So if it's sadness or if it's anger or if it's frustration, but suddenly everyone in the room is now focused on how that person is feeling. And it erases the fact that I am a human <laughs> who might be feeling things um, like not safe <laughs> or um, my own feelings of sadness or my own feelings of anger, my own feelings of frustration. Um, and it forces me to pretend like I am not human, like I am emotionless, um, like I am a robot who talks about race in favor of taking care of the feelings of the person who I am saying why don't you come along? Like, why don't you come on this journey? And instead of coming on yeah. this journey, I am now the caretaker of, right, of that person. Yeah, yeah. <sighs> and how unfair is that? That's ridiculous. Um, there's another, so let me just pause here for a second. And the quotes that all popped out to me uh, all have to do with the way, most of them have to do with the way that white people, totally. like myself, uh, misstep in these conversations. And so maybe it's unfair to ask you about all of these, but it's a it's a reflection of how I experienced the book. Well, so, and to be fair, I did write it. So, <laughs> well, yeah, but there was a lot more in there that we'll get to to some extent uh, that isn't just uh, what could be what could feel like picking on white people, which I don't think you are. You're yeah. offering an honest critique. Um, so all that to say, there's another sort of. Uh, type of person or experience that you articulate. And that is like the safe white person, yeah. uh, the, the person who thinks that they have it to some extent, uh, the person who may self-identify as woke even and use whatever term they want to put on themselves. And you say that that person is often more dangerous when challenged than the person who's oblivious. How so? So there's a lot of white people who really want to be the safe white person and God bless all of you. Because <laughs> um, we need more safe white people in the world. Yeah. Um, the problem is when that identity has become more important than actually doing the work that is required to be a safe person. Mm. Um, and so typically you will know you're a safe person when a person of color says you're a safe person. <laughs> Right? as opposed to declaring yourself the safe person, right? <laughs> yeah. um, and I, I, the, the intent, right, behind that is good. Intentions often are. Um, but w what often ends up happening is the person who says that they're safe um, turns out to be more concerned about the organization's the perception of the organization and the perception of the people who work in the organization and feeling the need to protect it, um, feeling the need to, um, to have a, Oh, but not here moment. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. Or, Oh, it's only that specific person. 
moment or or I could never be unsafe. Surely I have gotten it all right. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, it can just be really dangerous. And when someone has already identified themselves that way to then challenge that identity, um, we're back to, well, Austin, now you're just angry and over the top and you need to be yeah. more gracious and you need to be more loving and you need to be more kind. And yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh, geez. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why um, I have, I always have, uh, this may come across as strange, but I have uh, a bit of discomfort whenever someone describes themselves, when a white person describes themselves as woke, because it implies like, I've arrived, I have it, uh, as opposed to continuing to learn about the complex realities that I don't experience and someone else experiences on a regular basis. Yeah. I. <laughs> so I'm a black woman who walks around in a black woman's body, who's experienced the world as a black woman. And I have Amazon books showing up <laughs> at my home once every two weeks, maybe, because I am still learning. Mm. And if I am still learning, then white friends, I'm an A for you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> to realize that this is a journey for all of us. <laughs> we are all still unlearning and unpacking. And I try to show that in this book, too, that... There are things that I've had to unlearn, that there are books that I read that changed my life and changed my perspective. Um, so, you know, uh, none of us get to be static. As soon as we become static, we become unsafe. Yeah, and I think that's what I found in my own experience is that um, it's uh, an example of my my privilege that I can think that I've arrived somewhere because I don't have to confront anything different. Right. I can just be like, I've got it. Check that box. Move on with my day. Yeah. And I can walk away and not experience uh, prejudice or that, that poison of white supremacy. Yeah. And I'll tell you the the danger of of that, of of assuming that I have arrived, is that I it, it, it prohibits me from saying this is how you hurt me. Right? That that's really the answer to your question. How does the person who declares themselves safe actually become unsafe? That's exactly what it is. It's that someone says that they're safe. Um, and then when I want to say, oh, that, that hurt or, oh, but this is actually larger. Like you're almost there, but make it bigger right? or make it more volatile or, or, or realize just how flesh and blood I am or like take it one step farther. And the fact that I can't say that is what makes someone unsafe. Yeah, it's like they want to show you their their ID card at that point. Like, no, you didn't see safe white person right here. It's, right, you didn't get right. it. Yeah. And and you and and people of color can sense that, right? So so mm -hmm. no white person would be like, well, you can't tell me, <laughs> right? <laughs> of course you can tell me everything or anything. Of course you can correct me, right? But then we get into issues of supervisor, supervisee, mentor, right, mentee. Like, there's all these other things that enter into our relationship: pastor, congregant. You know that. Like, can I, can I tell you that yeah. you hurt me? Will you hear me? Will you listen to me? Or are you so, um, rooted in your idea of your having arrived that you can't hear me? Mm. And that doesn't have to be set, right? I can, I can feel that. I can sense whether or not our relationship allows for me to say that hurt. Yeah. 
Let's pivot a little bit onto a topic that I really enjoy talking about, and I enjoy the way that you talk about racial reconciliation, because it's something that I grew up with hearing about all the time. Uh, And there's a certain point where I think I got a little disillusioned and a lot of people got a little disillusioned with the idea of racial reconciliation. So I want to throw out a couple quotes uh, and, again, just have you um, throw your thoughts out afterwards. Uh, One of my favorite things that you said is, uh, we have let reconciliation become synonymous with contently hanging out with each other. <laughs> we, at a part- particularly at churches that consider themselves to be multiracial, yeah, we come together and we like sit next to one another and we're like, this is reconciliation. <laughs> we look at each other. And we go, we're in the yes, same room. We're in the yeah. same room. Can you believe that? Sunday, most segregated day, and here we are all together. Um, that's a, like a seriously low bar. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And it certainly doesn't qualify as reconciliation. <laughs> um, but that's, um, yeah, it's indicative of how much we watered down the word reconciliation. And there's a lot of folks who won't even use the word reconciliation anymore. Um, yep, because, I stopped saying yeah, it. And, yeah. And for good reason, for really good reason. Um, because when it comes synonymous with diversity and contentedly hanging out together or um, other examples of having coffee together or, <laughs> um, or I hired a, a babysitter and an assistant who doesn't look like me or right. Like when it becomes synonymous yeah. with things that have nothing to do with an inversion of power, um, nothing to do with systemic change, um, then essentially what it boils down to is we hang out together. So why you hit at it a little bit that why is hanging out together not enough to be considered racial reconciliation? Yeah. Um, so I highly recommend reading the book Radical Reconciliation. I'm going to plug that book because I was like, ding, 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 ding. This is it. Um, it is so much more than that. It is, it's, it's, Oh, I spent a whole chapter on this because I, I, and it was honestly, it was the hardest chapter for me to write. Mm. It was the hardest one for me to write because I have trouble even finding words for how big and beautiful and um, the level of imagination that it would take to really understand what we mean, what should be meant by the phrase racial reconciliation that it should be making all things right, that it should be about making reparations, it should be about finding healing, it should be about seeking equality and equity, it should be about, um, it should be that the, the relationships um, in the church are so unique and so different that the rest of the world is like, what's happening there? How how have these folks <laughs> figured out how to invert all these crazy power structures that exist over here in the world? It should be a curiosity. Right? Other people yeah. should go, wait, what? <laughs> how yeah. does that work? That's what people should be asking how does that work? And, um, 
yeah, just hanging out together. Like that's great. I'm not certainly not against hanging out together. I, yeah. I hang out with it's, it's a beautiful thing. Um, but yeah, reconciliation is supposed to be about a reordering and it's, it's a, mm. it's a re relationship. It's a, <laughs> it's a renewal. It's a starting over. It's, um, it's a starting over without forgetting what was. And I think yeah. that's a big part of reconciliation that people don't want to acknowledge. It's not just that, okay, we're going to start right now and we're going to build something great. It's like, well, no, we should probably talk about what's already happened. <laughs> we should. Yeah. 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 We should talk about the fact that your church was a part of white flight or that when you first started, there were no people of color on your leadership team or right. Like we, we can't just start right here. Yeah. We have to fix what was done. Um, and imagine something new. Oftentimes in those conversations, um, and I am very guilty of this, people just say, well, love is the answer. Like, let's just love each other better, which, uh, you know, it's not wrong. But one of the things that you said that uh, may for me have been the most like piercing quote of the entire book was that whiteness sees love as a prize it's owed rather than a moral obligation it must demonstrate. Yeah. Lay it on us. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to be really, really blunt and really, really general at the same time. Do it. Yeah, great. Um, White people really want to be loved. They really, really want to be loved. Um, And I just, and lots of other things too. They want to be admired and they want to, you know, lots of things. Um, Liked. Um, They want to be the safe person, right? But, But white people really, really want to be loved. And I think there's some core, something in the core that recognizes the hurt and harm right over centuries that has been done and a desire for a relief from that. right? And love feels like relief from that, right? Like, okay, I'm okay. I'm good. I'm doing the work, right? I am loved by black people. <laughs> um, and, and therefore reconciliation feels good right? Because it's like, oh, I am loved. I am in relationship. This person wants to have coffee with me. Um, Which is so damn self-centered. Like, really that's is. so absurd. <laughs> it really oh, is. But heart. if you haven't thought it through, right? If you're yeah. just going from yeah. your gut. Um, that is often how, how this conversation shows up in real life, right? And so, yeah, so reconciliation becomes ultimately it becomes about whiteness all over again, right? Making white people mm. feel good about being white, um, or at least not making white people not feel bad about being white, <laughs> right? At the very least. Um, but, um, but when we talk about love, particularly as Christians, it's supposed to be about what we're doing, not necessarily what we're receiving, Right. So love is is what we model to others. Love is about what we sacrifice for others. Love is about what we give to others. Love is about who we stand up for, who we protect, who we advocate for, who we right. But that's not usually what white people mean when they say we just need to love people more. What they usually mean is we need to be more polite or more civil or more Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, it's not actually about going as far as we could go for another person. I can almost guarantee that that statement is probably uh, grinding against some people right now a little bit, but I'm that's fine. I don't want to like 
correct it anymore. I think that needs to happen. So uh, let's let's have folks sit in that, uh, myself included. Um, another point that the point to me that, uh, and this could be a off base a little bit, but the point to me that felt the most vulnerable in the book was when you talked about um, your anger mm-hmm. as a person of color. Mm-hmm. And that's a conversation that, number one, as a white person, I'm not privy to very often. Right. And number two feels, at least from where I'm sitting, the most dangerous for you to articulate. Yes. Can you talk about how you wrote about anger and why you wrote about anger? Yeah. Um, I, uh, <laughs> the last three or four years, I have been more aware of my anger than in the previous years, right? So I've been doing this since I was in college, so more than 10 years now. And, um, but there has been something different about the last four years because of Black Lives Matter and Ferguson and Charleston and um, my level of anger, <laughs> my, both the level of anger and how often I am angry um, has skyrocketed in the last few years. And so um, it almost wasn't even a question as to whether or not I should. <laughs> it was like I... <laughs> must. (laughs) Mm. Um, and I think, I think my first line in that chapter is I've become very intimate with anger. And I think that's still accurate. Um, that anger no longer feels foreign to me. It doesn't feel unusual to me, um, that I've become intimate with it. She knows me, I know her (laughs) and we, we sit with each other and we talk to each other (laughs) and we figure out what we're going to do next together. (laughs) Um, But we have, we have become, yes, quite intimate with each other. Yeah. And that's something that um, I need to understand better because I think it feels, that feels threatening uh, to a lot of folks like myself because we don't understand it. And it feels because of the the poison that you articulated earlier, uh, it feels to be honest, unnecessary right. uh, for a lot from a lot of white people's perspective, True. Uh, and it's hard to understand. But you do it in a way uh, that I think helps folks understand it. So I'm grateful for how you articulated that. Yeah, in the book, I tried really, really hard to talk about both the sort of like workplace, education, daily experience where we spend most of our lives again for people of color who are in white dominated spaces. Um, But then to overlay that with all the social crap that we have to put up with, too, and um, and trying to bring those two things together and understand that that is how a lot of black women are experiencing the world, that there's the daily crap that happens. But then there's also the social crap that happens and the social then becomes intimate. Right. So I look at um, what happened with Trayvon Martin And it's not a story that's just like hanging out there in the world. It's not just a sad story. It makes me ask questions about my own life. So now I have a son and, and even, even then, and I didn't have a son then my, my thought was what, if I have a son, what will I tell him to do in this situation? If a stranger stops him and it's not an officer, do I tell him to run do I tell him to stay do I 
tell him to go back to the store? Like, like how, what do I say in order to keep my son safe? Um, and, and, and that's what I'm trying to bring out in this book is that it's never just one thing. It is always multiple layers of racism that we are wading through, climbing through, overcoming, stomping on, right? Like, and it, and it is fairly constant. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, The fact that you have to ask that question about as a parent, I can feel that anger in myself, even though I don't experience it. And so to have that pervasively be your experience, uh, I can't even begin exactly. to understand. Exactly. Yeah. Um, there's two other two other places I want to hit before we wrap up here. Um, and one is a a quote that I found very true and very hard mm-hmm. at the same time. And you talk about the narrative that often gets painted when we talk about racism and white white supremacy and racial equity is a narrative of progress that um, the the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And you, uh, you kind of say bullshit a little. You say you're not impressed with America's progress. I'm not, I wouldn't call it progress. I'm, I'm, I, I want. I acknowledge that America has changed. Right. I am not a slave, and bless God for my ancestors who survived. Um, when I get onto a bus, I do not have to sit in the back. And God bless my ancestors who survived. Um, hell, God bless my parents who survived, right? However, <laughs> while I acknowledge that change has taken place, I'm not sure that we get to pat ourselves on the back for not no longer enslaving people. Is that what we're patting ourselves on the back for? That is... Right. That's, that's our progress. Right? <laughs> that you and I don't have to drink as separate fountains anymore. That's what we're going to cheer for. That's that is the progress we have made. I think not. I think we maybe just hit zero. Right? Like we were in the negatives and yeah. now we're at yep. zero determining who it is we're going to be. Eh. Progress? I I guess. <laughs> If that's how yeah. others yeah. would like yeah. to look at it, that's fine. Um, I'll I'll give folks change. I willingly, readily. Um, I think it would be. Um, I think it would be disrespectful um, of my my own ancestors, my own grandmother, my own great grandparents to not acknowledge change. Progress seems a little strong of a word for for me. Again, just me. Yeah, but I think that's the honesty that the conversation deserves, you know, like, I think the fact that I often end these conversations on a high note with like hope and with with the MLK quote every time uh, is a little bit self-soothing. It's a little bit uh, trying to convince myself that things are going to be okay, even if they aren't okay uh, for a good portion of the United States right now. And I think that's what is really important in this book for me, because I too really do believe that the arc of the universe bends toward justice, right? I really do believe that Jesus is coming and all things will be made new. I really do believe in a heaven. I don't know what that heaven looks like, but it don't look like this. And that's exciting for me. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) So I really do. I believe in hope with a capital H. 
um, ultimate hope. And yet, that's not where I live. I live in America right now, right here, where I have to think through Trayvon Martin and Mike Brown and um, too many other folks to even name at this point. And that's only in the last three years, four years, maybe. Um, That doesn't include all of the folks who have preceded um, the names that we now can roll off our tongues. Well, not to end on a hopeful note, but to end on a note (laughs) after we have this whole conversation. uh, One of the things that um, you do that's really powerful in the book is you articulate clearly and beautifully how much you love being a black woman, which is again a conversation that I don't get to hear very often. Uh, And to have a window into that is just beautiful. Why was that so important for you to share? You know what? I'm so glad you asked this question. So I was teaching a class and there was, um, it was a class that was dominated by adults and we had some teenagers who came for the first time and they added this whole new layer of interestingness. Um, but in our conversation, we're talking about, I think stereotypes maybe. And no, we're talking about culture. And, and, (laughs) and one white male teenager says, um, oh my goodness, I'm like, I'm listening to all of these things. I'm listening to you talk about stereotypes and listening to you talk about prejudice. He's like, I didn't realize how hard it would be to be a black person or a person of color. I don't know if I could do it. And I thought, holy shit, is that all you've heard? (laughs) But damn it, I need to change my class. <laughs> All you've heard is that it's hard to be a black person. Now it is, <laughs> but that's not all there is to it. <laughs> there are some, like, I would not, I can't imagine, I have no desire to be in any other body than the one I occupy. I cannot imagine not belonging to the black community. And, and, and I mean every word of that. I cannot imagine not belonging to the black community, right? Like I belong there. I am a member. I love who we are. I love what we've done. I love our history. I love our story. I'm excited about our future. I just can't. Yeah. I cannot imagine. And so it was really important for me that this book not just be a woe is me. I'm a black person in America. But to say, oh, no, 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 I love who I am. I just need America to get its shit together. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't want to change. I want America to change. (laughs) Yeah. Um, In you've probably led these exercises or seen these exercises, but in the racial uh, anti-racism workshops that I've been a part of before, there's this activity and they'd probably kill me for saying this uh, publicly, but there's an activity that uh, goes along the lines of everyone goes around and says why they love being however they identify racially or ethnically. Okay. Uh, and by the end of it, the white people are so envious and feel so lacking. <laughs> that it's like, what have we been doing? Like, we, we, this is stupid. We're completely missing out on something here. <laughs> right. And you know what? I was so glad that that kid brought it up because it changed the course of our conversation. And there was, a, there was in particular an interracial couple and the white guy was like, oh, no. <laughs> he was like, let me tell you about my wife's culture. <laughs> let me tell you 
about what I've been missing. Let me tell you about what I experienced and how now I can't imagine my life without Spanish in it. How I can't imagine my life <laughs> without all these different foods and, and, and ways of being. And some of it he had a hard time even articulating because he was trying to go beyond, you know, like language, food, right? Like the tangible stuff. And he was trying mm-hmm. to go to this deeper level of like, family and right and togetherness and that same sense of belonging right yeah. we are together and we are in it and we have this shared story and um yeah it turned into a really beautiful conversation hmm. well i think you write about that really beautifully uh and again it's a window into your experience that i think will be really powerful for people to, to understand so thank you for doing that and thank you for writing all of it. Again, um, I don't, I generally am very complimentary towards authors, but I don't hype them up at the level that I'm hyping you up right now. Uh, (laughs) because this is genuinely a really, um, beautiful and moving and needed timely book. Uh, so I sincerely hope and strongly suggest that my listeners go get this immediately. Uh, and this is not just a, a plug. This is an honest, and sincere experience uh, that you have led me into and you're leading other people into. So thank you. I really, really appreciate that. I told my mom, who was the the person who introduced me to books and to libraries, and (laughs) I was like, Mommy, I just want to write a good book. (laughs) I just just need it to be a good book. It may not change anybody's life. You might be the only person who reads it, but it needs to be a good book. (laughs) And so your words matter a lot to me because I really do take writing very seriously in this project in particular, very seriously. So thank you for that. Absolutely. Um, If folks want to follow you, obviously they can find the book, uh, but if folks want to follow you other places, where should they check you out? Yeah, I love the Twitters. Um, So at Austin Channing and I think IG is the same at Austin Channing. Um, Facebook is my entire name. So it's Austin Channing Brown. Um, And then my website is, austinchanning.com i think okay. i'll put a link to all of this in the show notes so if you happen to get your website wrong we will have the correct one on there perfect well thanks so much austin uh i really appreciate it and it's been a great conversation so thanks My pleasure.